0: Golazzo is brought to you by FOTMOB, the essential app for your matchday experience. Get live scores, detailed match stats, notifications for every goal and breaking news from more than 200 leagues and cups around the world. Download it for free on Android and iOS now by searching for FOTMOB. That's F-O-T-M-O-B. Never miss a moment with FOTMOB.
1: Muddy News Media.
0: Today on Golazzo from shooters to flaming scooters, it's the movement the prosecutors couldn't neuter. Ultras, who are they? And how do they hold so much power? In a special two-part investigation, it's into the parallel world of Calcio's Rebels we go on Golazzo. Ultras, Croce Edilizia of the Italian game. Where would culture be without the pride and passion of the Ultras? But equally, what represents a bigger challenge than the violence and power of their movement? was to tackle this complex theme, we have drafted in a little help for this edition of Golazzo because alongside Gabriele Marcotti. Hello. And James Horncastle. Hello. We're joined by the man who wrote the book on Ultras, entitled Ultras. It is Tobias Jones. Hello. Lovely to have you, have you on, on the line from Italy. Ultras, I should stress, no relation to the new Netflix production.
2: No, it was, a, it was an OK film. I don't know if you've seen it, the, um, the, the film in Napoli. I thought it was OK. Um, these films are quite often, you know, rather glossy and full of beautiful people. It was quite gritty and um, no, it was, it, was a, it was a good film.
0: All right. I'll watch out for that. Uh, can I ask, though, first of all, why a book on ultras? Why do you decide to embed yourself uh, with a group of, uh, of supporters from
2: Cosenza? Yeah, well, I mean, the entirety of my writing life, I suppose, I've been writing mainly about two things, which is uh, communities, understood in all sorts of ways, and true crime. And it seemed to me that the, the ultras sort of combined those two sides of my my sort of professional life, if you want, because they're very much about groups and what it means to be a group, um, you know, and leadership and how a group evolves and who's allowed in and who's kept out, and obviously also there's always been a countercultural element that bleeds into crime. So those those two reasons really, I suppose, drew me to it. Plus the fact that you know I'm I'm slightly obsessed by football. And have always been obsessed by football, particularly Italian football. So, you know, it was an open goal, really. And the Cosenza nice. question, I mean, you know, I followed lots of teams and 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 lots of groups, but particularly the Cosenza one, because I think the further you get away from the big teams, the more authentic the ultra group is gonna be. So if you if you follow Juventus Ultras or Lazio Ultras or Roma Ultras, there's so much money and power associated with them, they're inevitably going to sort of get nudged into, into different dimensions. Whereas the the Cosenza Ultras were an opportunity to see the movement through a completely different lens. I mean, also there, there were just extraordinary stories. You know, the idea that they had a Franciscan monk who was one of the the sort of the mainstays of the Ultra group and that they were very much far left as opposed to far right. It it just gave me the chance to sort of balance the whole narrative, really.
1: Tobias, a lot of people, I think, don't quite get it with the Ultras that you find these all the way down the food chain. And because it's a good example, because obviously they've they've been in City of B, they've they've been further down. I I don't know know what level they were at when you uh, were following them, but you see these weird situations in the equivalent of, I suppose, conference football in, in England where you've got clubs who maybe draw 200 people and 150 of them will be ultras from these teeny tiny cities and, and yet they have the big banners and they make the noise and often you just kind of see like sort of two sets of ultras at either end of these tiny grounds and then you see like two old guys and a dog in between sitting behind the bench. I mean, it's a very different world as you describe from from what you see higher up the food chain.
2: Yeah, and I think that's because it comes down to belonging. You know, it's all about an expression of rootedness and pride in where they come from, which I think is a lot stronger in Italy than it is in Britain. You know, you can go to a tiny village anywhere in the peninsula, and you will find a bit of graffiti saying, "You know, Caput Mundi, we are the you know the capital of the world," and they genuinely believe it. So I think you, it's partly because of because of belonging. And then and the other thing, as you know, is actually quite often they're not that into the football. You know, I lost count of the number of times I was told, you know, I'm not that, not that into football. It's all about brotherhood and colours and our suburb or city or town or whatever it is. So it's this sort of strange paradox that they're obsessed by the football, but at the same time, they don't really care about it. Um,
1: There's a Italian word for, it, of course, which I think, both James and I have used a bazillion times on this podcast called Campanilismo which I'm sure plays into it right the the notion that every town even though to an outsider the town next to it might be identical just about feels that they're so different from the people next door and they all feel that they're genuinely unique
2: Yep, yeah no that's exactly and you know it's interesting that in terms of the not really being interested in footwear most ultra groups now refuse to chant the names of an individual footballer, you know, which is unthinkable in Britain, where you, you know, we we have our sporting heroes. Certainly, in the last 10-15 years, there's almost been an injunction against chanting for any name, because, and this is, I think, was what one of the things that has given the ultras a lot of power. If you are in an industry like football, which is more or less rootless, so that the you know the president or the chairman, almost certainly, certainly in Britain, but increasingly in Italy, isn't from your town, your city, your suburb. If the players aren't, then the only people who really are from your neck of the woods are the ultras. So they become the sort of the most faithful expression of of that team in a way, even more than the players. So that that sort of has changed their role recently in recent years
0: all countries have extreme fans often organized extreme fans but ultras are different in so many ways james if you had to give an example of of how they stand out of the ways they're different to say supporters in in the uk is anything that springs to mind
3: well, they're a lot more organised. is Is the initial kind of impression that I've always had of them. I think when Gabriele was was saying earlier about you go to grounds up and down Italy, whatever the level, it often doesn't matter whether a stadium is full or not, uh, even if it's just you know say five thousand in a in a in a stadium of, of fifteen or twenty thousand. The atmosphere, the noise um, that you have is so much greater than sometimes at full stadiums in England and other countries around Europe. I think the other thing to add, just not in terms of organisation outside of this or away from the stadium is the kind of, and you see it in days like we're living in at the moment, is the, the kind of social work that they do. Um, how they, you know, if there is a disaster, I remember after the Mirandi Bridge disaster in Genoa how when teams came to play against Genoa or Sampdoria, travelling ultras would bring help packages, relief packages, to those who'd been displaced and, and affected in some way by that disaster. You, you see it in, at the moment expressing this kind of social conscience. We, I think we were talking off air a little bit about Boccia, Claudio Gallimberti, the, the historic kind of head of the ultras at Atalanta, kind of currying favour with other other ultra groups around Lombardy, basically saying, you know, we do not want this season to be resumed uh, at all. We want it to be cancelled. We don't think um, there is a moral moral case for the season to to resume when so many people are grieving and have been affected by this crisis. So I think that that level of of organisation, that level of solidarity, even though there are lots of differences between these groups, be they political or whatever. I think is is one of the things that marks them out from other ultra groups around around Europe, certainly.
0: All right, as we explore what makes the ultras the the ultras, uh, let's start off with a little bit of history. Ultra, there, Ricky Tognazzi's seminal 1991 film on the manners and modes, the mores of. Roma Ultra score by Antonello Venditti, of course. All right, so the Ultras have been around uh, for a long time and they're a major part of it, Italian football culture and heritage. But how, how did we get to the, the Drugi, the boysan, the Fighters and and etc., from the Tifosi of, the say, the 50s? How did it all evolve into the place we are now? Tobias.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I sort of, at the beginning of the book, I went back and read... All sorts of, you know, historians from ancient Rome, and they were saying things that were almost identical to what politicians are saying about ultras today. Which, you know, these scallywags who are the, you know, scourge of civilization, and they're all drugged up and drunk. And so there is a constant. Um, who were they talking about, through, about? Oh, they were talking about people going to the Colosseum to watch, you know, lions eating Christians, that sort of thing. So that's that's been a constant normally that you know the beginnings the genesis of the ultras is thought to be 68 69 and there were two or three groups that started everything there was the the, the fossa in um, milan sampdoria torino so these groups were were sort of some of the some of the first groups and you know just the use of the word fossa which is is sort of a ditch but can also mean a grave very early on there was this sort of language that was a bit like the hell's angels this idea of you know a bit like a pirate skull and crossbones there was a lot of iconography around around death and dirt and so on and so forth and at the beginning a lot of them the vast majority were from the far left so they were using terms like you know brigades uh fedayin tupamaros So a lot of the sort of the liberation guerrilla movements from South America, from Palestine, from, you know, the Italian, uh, from the Second World War, the partisans against, against, you know, Mussolini's fascists. So it was predominantly from the far left. And this was a period, you know, moving in from 69 to the 70s. This was a period in Italy, of course, that was the years of lead. So um, a time of political extremism between far left and far right. And one of the one of the many paradoxes of the ultra movement is that it was both a sort of a mimicking of that political violence. So one of the gestures that you see all the time through photos in the early 70s is people putting their hands in the air and doing the the gesture of a pistol with their two fingers out. So they were sort of mimicking the violence. But at the same time, a lot of the, the people you talk to from those years say actually it was a retreat from the violence, that they were. Deliberately saying we don't want any politics here, um, so there are lots of examples of groups that combine both far left and far right. That's what was happening in the in the late sixties, early seventies.
0: But as you say, at this point, politics becomes so radicalised. And then, is it football? Is just there's a contagion, or is it that people see football as a as a really unique opportunity to to try and make waves politically?
2: Well, I mean, I think the. The politicisation of the ultras is well, a long and controversial topic, but I mean, I think there were various stages. There were certain groups that were always, you know, take the Hells Angels, for example, They and the punks, they used a lot of fuss stickers and, you know, we'll quote Hitler. But it was often, they said, just to to piss off the squares, you know, to piss off traditional society and, and, and so forth. And I think there was a lot of that in the ultras, but there were certain groups or, or parts of groups that really were, you know, believers. So elements of of the, the Lazio ultras, elements of the Verona, Hellas, Verona Ultras, um, and the Enteisti, and various others. They they, you know, I think would say they were they were true believers, they were nostalgic. What happened was, I think. The left lost its ideological foundations because of all sorts of geopolitical reasons that we know about in the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think Heisel made a huge difference because until then, almost all the ultra groups had looked to British hooligans as a sort of an act to follow. You know, they were the the pissheads who were great at punch-ups and they caused carnage wherever they went and they borrowed a lot of songs, they borrowed a lot of flags. You know, you look at the amount of Union Jacks in the photos of the 70s, early 80s and suddenly after Heisel, particularly obviously for Juventus fans, but I think throughout the Italian ultra movement, there was this notion that, you know, we don't want to mimic the, the Brits anymore and it became a much more nationalistic movement. And then, of course, what what happened in the early 90s was, you know, the beginnings of mass immigration to Italy and a movement that is founded on belonging and the exclusion of outsiders. You know, we're from Parma, we hate people from Reggio Emilia and so on and so forth. A movement that was based on, you know, scorn for outsiders, obviously, very naturally, could be blended and moulded by a nascent far right that was saying we don't want this wave of immigrants. So, those are some of the ways in which it got nudged in the other direction.
1: Galazzo!
2: You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, in association with FOPMOB.
0: It's a shame, in fact, that the ultra movement, which often Groups have been started with really noble aims and beliefs, and one of which being to try and defend the real values of football in, as what you mentioned, to Bas is an increasingly uh, mercenary world that the sport has, has evolved into. Uh, but a movement that has begun in that way has been hijacked by political extremism, and increasingly... Uh, by organized crime. Uh, let's talk for a second if we may about Fabrizio Piscitelli. E
2: ora la cronaca, l'ultra della Lazio, Fabrizio Piscitelli, conosciuto anche come Diabolic, è stato ucciso ieri con un colpo d'arma da fuoco alla testa, una vera e propria esecuzione. Il suo corpo è stato trovato in un parco alla periferia della capitale, una storta.
0: Piscitelli, not Diabolic for e decades, was the leader of Lazio's Itiducibili. Uh, last August, though, he was found dead on a park bench, executed by a gunshot to the head. What does his story and that of the Irritu Chibeli tell us about the evolution of organised TIFO and its movement into organised crime?
2: Yeah, his his life story is amazing. And it, it's really interesting that talking to, you know, hundreds of different ultras, they all said to me the same thing, which is that, the irriducibili aren't ultras. Piscitelli isn't an ultra. And you know, whether you agree with that or not, the purists would say anyone who's making money from this way of life isn't really an ultra. I mean he he came to to power, I suppose you would say, when Towards the late 80s, Lazio's main ultra group was called the Eagles. And, you know, they'd become a bit sedentary and were going on comfortable buses paid for by the club and being quite sedate and clapping their hands. And there was a guy whose nickname is Grinta, Grit, who saw all these sort of teenage scallywags and said, no, no, we need something a lot more muscular and founded the, you know, the irreducibles, the diehards, if you like, and gathered around him these... These teenagers who, who were very sort of open about what they were doing. It was just twenty or thirty of them in a train carriage, and they would have some pretty hardcore hazing going on of anyone who wanted to be a new a new recruit, and they were brilliant at um, the iconography. You know, one of the things I'm I'm, I'm sort of less interested in in the ultra world but they're all obsessed by is the choreografia you know the pageantry the the display and you know I'm not that interested in it but a lot of ultras are and especially the, the this new group partly because Grinta w- was is a graphic designer um, they were brilliant at the iconography and were doing some very funny cool things you know um, and so they got noticed they were pretty hardcore and were you know beating people up but because, partly because they came to the terraces, became the sort of the top group, just as Latios were being, you know, exciting. You know, you know all about it, James, from you know the nineties, Signori and Gaza and all the rest. Those those sort of lovely images of those those Lazio players in the like baggy shirts, and there was this group that was doing original things and suddenly the penny dropped and this is post Italia 90 when suddenly you know football becomes uh, an opportunity for merchandising they just started opening shops and made a lot of money and because they were from having been the ultra movement then from having been a sort of a carnivalesque free-for-all in which anyone could wear anything they wanted it became very much uniformed you know the, the iriducibly were very good at saying, and they're still doing it, you know, you have to wear New Balance trainers, you have to wear, you know, only Adidas this and Ray-Bans this. And, and they they had outlets and were making millions of millions of euros or billions of lira, as it used to be. And Piscitelli deposed Grinta. And I've heard stories, which I can't repeat, but I heard, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken to, to Grinta and, you know, it was, as you would imagine, a deposition would be And he made he made a lot of money, not only from clothing, you know, they were regular busts for drug dealing. There were many members who were uh, involved in bank jobs. One of them got killed during a bank job. There were sort of uh, sawn off legs that washed up in the Tiber with iriducible tattoos on them. You know, all sorts of things that would lead you to think, actually, they are becoming a proper drugs gang. And, you know, as you say, he was he was murdered in, in August. It's, you know, it's very interesting that sort of the power games between other groups and other groups that were trying to to nudge them out because, they, you know, they, they've been in power for 30 years. You know, they're middle-aged stroke, old age men now um, from having been teenage scallywags. Other groups were trying to come through and the battle with Lotita, the president of Lazio, why there was a battle and their attempt to use Kinalia, the great, you know, I call him Welsh because, you know, I mean, he's obviously from, from Massa Carrara, but he was, you know, he grew up in, in, in Cardiff. The attempt to use Kinalia, the Lazio legend, to actually buy Lazio using mafia money from the Camorra, you know, the Napolitan mafia. I mean, most ultras say this is nothing to do with the ultra world. This is just gangster, gangster stuff.
0: I mean, the Iritu Chibili had, had so many incidents, I mean, famous incidents as well, yeah. of where they were exerting power over Lotito or, or indeed before that, Cragniotti. You, you mentioned Signori in the baggy shirts. One of the, the first times I remember hearing the Iritu Duchibile name was when they, they organized those mass protests on the streets when, when Lazio were talking about selling Signori to, uh, to Panama. That time, the club, for whatever reasons, decided to go back on it. Other occasions, it didn't work out quite so well for them. The the famous time when uh, Lilian Turam is training for Palmer and comes back in to the dressing room and finds himself uh, having a summit with a diabolic I think was there and, and, and three other uh, Iduchibili who've, who've driven up and been granted entrance uh, to the kind of inner sanctum of one of the biggest clubs in the world. extraordinary
2: yeah, no it's amazing and police officers have said they were amazed that Piscitelli was was you know organizing meetings with the head of the police, he was banned, you know, he was given one of these stadium bans repeatedly, and he would still be there. And, you know, I quote the instance in the book where a policeman went up to him and say, look, I don't mind if you're here, but just be a bit more subtle about it, because he was just doing what he was always doing. So there was a an amazing degree of collusion. and And, you know, we can only speculate as to why that might be.
0: Let's speculate that what is the reason that the clubs have been so often collaborating with the ultras or at the very least allowing them to march on the training grounds, demand audiences with players who they feel are underperforming or just do whatever it is they feel is necessary? I think
3: it's dangerous liaisons. I think when a lot of owners uh, become presidents by clubs. They want to get the ultras on board for very obvious reasons. They they play to the gallery and we've seen, and this is another element of kind of ultra wealth making, is how many times they've just been given tickets to sell and uh, and the amount of money they make from that. And I think too often owners have, have created monsters really in, uh, in giving audiences to them, allowing them to, to, to make money. And all of a sudden, you have to keep satisfying this kind of group, if you like. Um, and it becomes very difficult for, for some of them to control. And if circle back on Lazio, I think that's one of the, the, the issues Lotito had, because when he bought the club, which he said was, it was like walking in to a funeral and they were putting Lazio's coffin into the ground, he had to take some of the privileges away from uh from from the Lazio ultras in order to start running Lazio as an actual business i mean uh, i think this is one of the principal problems that italian football has in terms of modernizing and moving on you don't have infrastructure like let's say a privately owned stadium which you control if you want to make more money it's through commerce it's through merchandising it's from increasingly player trading and tv rights and yet these have kind of been given away in the past to the ultras. You know, we didn't need that. We're here for our own egos. I mean, that that always felt to me with Caragnotti. It was that he was there for his own ego to add to his own fame and notoriety by building a successful team, winning a club. I mean, I spoke to Sven Goren and Eriksson a couple of weeks ago about because I think it's 20 years since Lazio last won the title. And he was like, uh, he said to Caragnotti, he was like, you know, if you just bought me a few more players earlier, we would have we would have maybe won the league two or three times rather than just the once. And Craniotti's response was, "Once was enough for me because it kind of created his legend around that team." And I, I think, I think that is one of the reasons why these presidents are so kind of ego hungry that they allow these uh, ultras to, as long as they come on board, they'll give them what they want for however long that is.
1: I have to say that a Ericsson... Picture that Cragniotti didn't spend enough money on him when Cragniotti bankrupted the club and went to prison. is I mean, that, that is just vintage uh, Sven Yarn Eriksson. But, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like the ultras are, I mean, right, Liri Ducibidi, I think, are an extreme case. And as Tobias said, like, they're viewed by many other ultras groups as pariahs because they kind of do this as a living, right? It's, it's, it's like, you know, this is my job. Um and I think that was one of the cases that was made uh with with some of the the in, in, in the case against Juve, which I'm sure we'll uh we'll get to. Um I remember Gianluca Viali telling me the story, in fact I think it's in I think it's in our book about how you know when he was they always had this this weird relationship, right? Even if you didn't have groups that were as out of control as the Iriducibili, um he talked about when he was at Juve, there was a period when they weren't doing well and the club maybe felt a little bit that the players were taking it easy and one day weirdly the ultras showed up at training at the old comunale stadium and they all just got in and started breaking things and shouting at the players now he doesn't have any proof that you know they were invited in by the club nobody's suggesting that but you know there's a coincidence that Maybe a gate was left unlocked, and maybe nobody actually called the cops, and maybe they were allowed to run roughshod and maybe to scare the players a little bit. I mean, I don't know to what degree it happens again today, but I think there was definitely, it was almost like if you view it as like there's the club, there's the ultras, and then there's the players, there's almost three elements, and you played one off the other to get what you wanted. I think that's how a lot of clubs would probably justify to themselves.
0: That goes back to one of the positive aspects of the ultras, the fact that they are a, a way of representing, you know, what the guys on the ground actually feel and want for the club that they spend so long, their entire lives often, dedicated to, to supporting. But it's just the ways, the excesses of that that power and that influence. So you mentioned the Signori protest, but equally and you know, far less tastefully, at Udinese, when the club were looking at uh, signing the Israeli international Ronnie Rosenthal, the ultras effectively blocking that because of his his provenance. One of the more famous examples in 2004, the Rome Derby, the biggest game in the calendar for Lazio and Roma, was effectively suspended by this kind of joint action between the Irutucibili and the Laziali and and, and, uh, the Romanisti, who should be their biggest enemies. To pass, for anyone who's not familiar with that story, how a rumour of a child being killed led to the fans demanding it being stopped and the players basically acceding to their demands. Can you just sum up what it was about? and Why the Lazio and, and Roma
2: fans came together like that? Oh, that's an easy, easy question to answer. I mean, it's it's known as the derby of the dead baby. And there are, you know, gazillions of explanations of why this happened. I've heard many. If you listen to the ultras, they say there was so much police violence and aggression Um that it was credible the rumour was credible that there was a young child who'd been who'd been killed. You know, there so was they someone who deliberately put that rumor around. No, what they said is so there was so much tear gas, there was so much violence, there was someone being stretched with a sheet over the head, having an asthma attack. It looked like a you know a dead person. Phone calls were going left, right and centre, and they said, you know, we need to call this off. And of course, you know, the the point at which ultras always come together and this is something you know certainly worth talking about is police violence you know they they believe and they admit you know they say we are violent Don't, you know that's a central ring in the chain of being an ultra is, is our violence but we're up against a force which is equally violent and they come together against violence so that's that's their explanation of, of what happened. And, you know, Totti famously went to talk to, to one of the ultra leaders and came back saying to his, you know, his colleagues and and, and sort of manager and, and and team said, you know, if we play on, they're going to kill us. You know, that, that those were his words. So there was this immense menace in the air. The more cynical interpretation of it is that it was nothing to do with police violence that Laty at that time had such huge debts that it was likely the club was going to go bust, and that the ultras were looking for any excuse to put pressure on politicians to, you know, spread the debt. And that that happens repeatedly through the early, you know, two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six. That the the debts of these football clubs are so huge that presidents or chairmen were sort of almost opening the gates of the ultras. To put pressure on politics, and you know, Berlusconi said as much. You know, he said if if we hadn't done the Spalma Debiti decree, you know, that the spread the debt um, for football clubs, uh, we would have we would have had a riot. You know, and he said public order is more important than financial probity.
1: I mean, uh, I, Device is absolutely right, and this was. This is one of those weird things where in the end, I mean, if you want to view it from Joe Taxpayer's perspective, the Joe Taxpayer is the one who got screwed here because everybody benefited from it, right? So the ultras got to have this big show of power about how they really still control things. And the clubs, and it wasn't just Lazio who benefited from it, although obviously they benefited from it the most. Lotito actually is the guy who ultimately benefited more than anybody because they were able... I mean, without going into boring accounting stuff, but they were basically able to balance their books by spreading the debt over 20-odd years, something absurd into the future where it became nearly meaningless, you know. And, and that allowed them to evade some of the financial controls, and that gave other clubs then license to overspend, and I think in some ways we're still overspend without really having any money, I might add, and accumulate debt, and you know, in some respects we're still paying for that today, certainly Milan are, um, and probably Lazio too. So it was that kind of thing where you know football said we're special, make special rules for us that don't apply to the rest of industry and the rest of sport. And the ultra said, yeah, yeah, benefits us too, and you know everybody kind of <laughs> the bed. It, it's interesting that
2: you know one of the one of the descriptions of what an ultra group is that was used by Toffolo, uh, you know Piscitelli's right hand man. He said, I'm a union leader. You know I speak for ten thousand people. And, you know, that's the rhetoric. I don't believe it because actually, you know, a lot of these groups were getting free tickets and touting them to, to their own fan base to make a lot of money. So, you know, they're not representing fans, but that's the rhetoric. And of course, you know, just the same as the unionists, one of the reasons they can put pressure on on presidents is that they can call a strike. And if suddenly you have 20,000 people not going to the stadium, you know, it hits someone hard in the wallet.
3: I mean Lazio are still still paying the tax man until twenty twenty-three for I think uh arrears that had been run up by Sergio Caragnotti, which, you know, it's is quite remarkable when you uh when you think about I think that was a hundred and forty million, which was obviously not something that Lotito, with his uh with his background in what commercial cleaning and catering uh, could uh, could necessarily come up with. So just just a, an, another insight into the kind of financial extravagance, largesse, and kind of just blowing it all that we saw not only at Lattier in there at the turn of the century, but clubs like Padma as well.
0: That Rome derby in 2004, not an isolated case, by the way, of a, a game being suspended because of the ultras. Sometimes it's been because of a, a, a very serious reason. Famously, the clash between Genoa and, and Milan back in the 90s, uh, which we were out televising, uh, got suspended at halftime because of the the, the, the murder, essentially, of a, a Genoa fan, Vincenzo Spagnolo before the game had actually begun. And the, the, the fans, once they heard, demanded to the players that the game didn't proceed. Other times, you've seen, again, at, the, at, at Marassi, a, a clash um, more recently, 2012, between Genoa and Siena, where the, the, the Genoa Ultras held the game up for 45 minutes and demanded that the Genoa players hand over their jerseys because they, their performance and performances meant they weren't worthy yeah. of them.
1: But, I mean, okay, I, for me, look, with all due respect to Vincenzo Spagnolo, who was stabbed, you get involved in certain things, stuff happens, right? It's a tragedy. Vincenzo Spagnolo was not, you know, some nice man who was going to, to the match. He went there for a reason and something happened. And that was tragic. But more shameful than that was what happened in that Genoa game. And more frustrating is that, as you said, that happened in 2012. That's not quite ancient history. The person who owned Genoa at the time, sadly, still owns the club today. And sadly, has been a fixture in Italian football for for 20 years. And despite everybody's best efforts, is still there. I'm not saying it's Enrico Preziosi's fault. But that situation where you had that, that pathetic sight of that other... Scumbag suck up of the Genoa captain um, Rossi. What's it? Was it Marco Rossi? Marco Rossi going around and saying, "Well, the old everybody stop. The ultras want me to walk around and collect everybody's shirts because they're unhappy with us and they'll give us a hard time." You know, you should grow some. Your authority should have grown some. Preziosi should have taken his players off the pitch then and there.
3: Uh, Giuseppe um, Sculi grew some, but then again, he's got he's got some pretty pretty good yeah, guys Giuseppe behind. Sculli, him.
1: Giuseppe Scuoli is you know locked and loaded. But, but 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 what I'm saying is one of the reasons this happens is that if you look at the owners of Serie A clubs, and, and Tobias made a great point earlier about roots and, and, and stuff like that, you have a lot of people who are involved in football for their own convenience, and you have a lot of people. Who I'm, I made the count a couple years ago. I don't. I'm sure it's lower now, but a couple years ago, you had 60% of Serie A owners who had either been found guilty, or been indicted, or been, or were under investigation for one crime or another, ranging from false accounting to fraud, to money laundering, to worse in some cases. So is Preziosi, By the way, um, so when you're the ultras and you're saying, you know, I represent the club I will be there when this interloper who has bought my club and is profiting off it is long gone you know they feel that it gives them a kind of moral authority and without you know sort of being banal and saying oh well they're just as bad as each other maybe they're not as bad as each other but they're both bad when they behave like that and and that sense of illegality that sense of anything goes with the ultras also applies sadly with a lot of club presidents in Serie a owners, or has done in the past. I think the situation's improving now, but it's still like doing a you know a U-turn in a in a super tanker.
0: And not just in Serie a either. I echo that point made earlier about how the power of the the ultras, the whole phenomenon, extends right down the footballing pyramid. How about that case from 2013, a year after Genoa, Siena, all the way down in Liga Pro.
3: Yeah, well, you had this remarkable game between Nocerina and Salernitana. Or and,
0: uh, well, rather, you didn't.
3: Well, exactly. I mean, I think it was in Salerno and the Nocherina Ultras were uh, banned from attending that game. And so upset uh, were they by this ban that they basically threatened their players that um, if they uh, if they played that game, something bad would happen to them. Um, and so the Nocerina players do show up for the game but I think within what five minutes, three players were on the ground claiming they were injured and had to be substituted. Um, then there were some more injuries um, between then and what the 21st minute. And ultimately the game had to be forfeited. So again, that was another kind of show of the kind of power, the intimidation that ultras have, not only you know the ones that have yeah, great resource behind them, great backing. Um, but even even ones like the uh, ultras di nocerino. Ultras di de, no, it's, it's Nocerino is Antonio Nocerino.
1: <laughs> no, nocerino. The ultras from <laughs> Noce yeah. Just from Nocera <laughs> exactly. Inferiore, which is the birthplace of the legendary Minoraiola. Ah that's really? where he was born before moving okay. to this Holland, is in the, coming This Dutch.
0: is kind of in the kind of hinterlands of, of Naples.
1: Yeah, I saw down there. Tempine. Um but <laughs> down there. Okay. I I mean I think I think the re- the reality is you go to these towns, you know, these footballers, this, these are equivalent of league 1 footballers. Yeah, they they certainly make better salaries than most people, but they probably, you know, they can't this isn't Cristiano Ronaldo. They don't have bodyguards. They can't sequester themselves away in uh in in, in armored villas. They have to go out to eat, their kids go to school, their wives go go shopping. Everybody knows where they live. You know, there is a level of intimidation sometimes um, and then you also have really a big lack of faith in, in law enforcement and, and the authorities down there. You have a culture of people not wanting to talk um, and all these things come together and, and we saw this, this horrendous thing. I mean, in that specific game, I think what was, what was most disturbing about it, and again, I'm sorry, but I think clubs have to take responsibility, These idiots, right? All right, so they suffer threats. They tell the police they've been threatened. The police say, look, we'll protect you. They travel to Salerno to play. They're sitting in the dressing room. In the dressing room, they say, we refuse to play. And again, the police say, whoa, you have to play or you'll be fined. And so, you know, that was a time to grab your balls and say, no, we're scared. We're not going to play. And we'll face whatever consequences. Instead, they thought they'd be clever. They'd go out onto the pitch and all pretend they were injured which, you know, again, turns it into to, to a farce and a freak show. Why? Because there's an evident lack of grown-ups around these people and around these clubs and around these people who run these institutions, and that's what allows certain ultras groups to take liberties.
3: Yeah, I mean, just on that point of intimidation, I mean, it, it, if you want a real example of that, just go on YouTube, and do you remember the case of um, you know, Piacenza, Maybe a decade ago, where they, they were at the training ground, and there was the, the capo ultra Davide Reboli who came over and really kind of squares up face to face with uh, the
1: captain.
0: <inaudible>
3: Choose them all out, and it looks like it's going to become just a mass brawl. I mean, it is. I mean, that is, uh, it, it should be put in the dictionary alongside intimidation. I mean, it's that kind of, uh, that kind of frightening. So, yeah, check it out.
1: You know, what, what is really interesting, and, and, I, and I look forward to hitting this with Tobias in part two, is especially the early years when people talk about far left and far right and being macho and whatever. I get all of that when it comes to people in their late teens and, 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 and people in their 20s, Right you know, these are angry young men. We see this everywhere. In some countries, they go and they, they fight at pub closing times and, you know, they have certain ideas and whatever. But then generally, and I think this applies to to, to to sort of extreme fans in most countries, most of these people, by the time they hit their 30s, they kind of move on. Maybe they might become weekend warriors sometimes, but they kind of move on and, and, and they have lives in the past. And mm. weirdly, a lot of these guys, Diabolique, he was in his 50s. Some of these people have made an actual profession out of right. it. Right. And, and I think that's that's an interesting and almost unique uh, thing that we see here.
0: The ability to turn it into a career. Well, indeed, we'll explore further the evolution of the ultra and also some of the more positive aspects of this movement when we return next time out on Goladso for part two of our journey into this curious parallel world. For now, many thanks to Buzz Jones for joining us today. Thank you. And to Gabriele and to James. We'll catch up with you again in part two. For now, from all of us here, it's a riva
2: di
1: calcio italiano
2: You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Galazzo!
0: <laughs>
3: Muddy Knees Media.